Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we interview journalists and think tank types about topical global issues. And we go deep with foreign policy thought leaders and luminaries who discuss their life and career. My guest today is Jean-Marie Gehenno. He's currently president of the International Crisis Group, and prior to that, he was head of peacekeeping operations at the United Nations. He's out with a new book, a memoir of sorts, called The Fog of Peace, which I'm reading now, and it's great, essential for the bookshelves of UN nerds around the world for sure. Jean-Marie Gehenno is one of my favorite scholar practitioners in international affairs. I followed his career for a long time, but really knew nothing personal about him until this conversation. And I think you will agree that he has a very interesting background. We have a pretty wide-ranging conversation. As head of peacekeeping from 2000 to 2008, Gehenno presided over the largest expansion of Blue Helmet operations in the history of the organization. We discussed the challenges he faced at the UN, how he came to that position, including his job interview with Kofi Annan. We discuss other interesting moments of his life, career, and intellectual development. He was a pretty dyed-in-the-wool neocon cut from the Paul Wolfowitzian cloth until about the end of the Cold War, and he discusses is why the fall of the Berlin Wall changed his worldview. And if you're new to the podcast, welcome. I post one of these deeper explorations of the events, ideas, and influences that shape the worldview of foreign policy practitioners, scholars, and luminaries every week. And if you're a fan of the International Crisis Group as I am, I recommend you check out my conversation with the past president of the International Crisis Group, Luis Arbour. That's definitely one of my favorite episodes, and you can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to find it and more. And here it is, my conversation with Jean-Marie Gehenno. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Now, my father was a public figure in, in France. He was, uh, he was 60 years old when I was born. So my father was born in 1890, and he came from a very humble background, but I mean, through force, he had to leave school at 12, and through force of will, he... Uh, he managed to get prestigious École Normale Supérieure. He was the class of 1911, École Normale Supérieure, which is a bit like, uh, you know, Harvard, or I mean, it's a top French school, mm -hmm. French university, Grande École, as we say in France. He, he loses half of his uh, class there. And that experience of the war, where he was himself wounded in 1915, and that experience of, he had heard Jaurès, Jean Jaurès, the uh, French socialist and anti-war activist who was killed just before the war started, who was assassinated in Paris. He, that experience of World War I made him a, a strong pacifist. He felt that the whole I mean, drift of Europe toward war uh, was a catastrophic event that could have been prevented. 
But the, the drama of his life is that then comes Nazi uh, Germany, and many people in his generation had been traumatized by, by the experience of World War I and were pacifists to the bitter end, to 1940. He uh, decided that um, freedom at some times is more important than peace, and so he was against the pacifism of uh, World War II, of uh, some um, face to, to Hitler. Did he and, write about this this transition, this experience of being a pacifist, but then being confronted with Hitler? Deciding yeah, he, um, I mean, he, he refused to publish anything during uh, the, the Nazi occupation of France. Uh, the last publication uh, he made was in uh, June 1940, to say there is a France, a France that cannot be invaded, France of ideas and uh, and freedom and free spirits, uh, and then he wrote a diary, uh, the diary of the dark years, which has just been published in English actually last year by Oxford University Press. I suppose so. This is his diary of his experience during World War II, which which he which he refused to publish publicly. Yes, uh, yes, and which is a very good uh, testimony on that period. You're born into then a you know a, a pretty prominent intellectual family. I, I would take it. Yes, yes, and uh, you know a, a family history of someone who comes from nowhere and then who becomes eventually a member of the Académie Française, which is a presti prestigious institution in France, but who never felt that uh, social success is what matters. What matters is how you transform the life of others. And I certainly inherited from my father a sense that. Your life doesn't belong to you. You have to make something of it. Like, what are your, some of your earliest memories of manifesting that that idea that you that you just described of what your purpose in life is? To be honest, I think it came uh, gradually. I mean, I uh, I was never under external pressure to succeed at school, but there was a more internal pressure, so to speak, uh, that was more powerful than if I had a bad grade, my parents well, felt sorry for me. They didn't say, oh, that's terrible, you had a bad grade. Uh, so it was more the internal pressure. Where I evolved was initially I thought I would be a professor like my father had become, uh, and then I felt he had been a great professor because in a way he came from somewhere else. And if I was just a professor as a son of a professor, I would not bring to the classroom, to academic research, the kind of sense of the real world that, that was needed. And so early on, when I was uh, at the Ecole Normale Supérieure myself, I began to, I, I started uh, being interested in the international affairs. Uh, and uh, then I went to the Ecole Nationale d'Administration and I had some great diplomats as uh, instructors. And I was, I became really pa passionate about international affairs and in the sense that the, where you're born, both in your country, whether you're born uh, in, uh, in a family which has not, it's not about wealth, it's about intellectual resources or not, it makes a huge difference. But an even bigger difference if, is if you're born in a place like the Democratic Republic of the Congo or if you're born in Europe or the United States. Uh, and so working hard to make sure that people are not determined mm -hmm. uh, by uh, the luck of their birth, uh, so, for me, is an essential dimension of life. So you, you ended up joining the French Foreign Service? I ended up joining, actually, 
initially, no. I joined the uh, 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 French institution called the Cour des Comptes, the Court of Audit, uh, because I liked the independence of it. I wasn't sure I would, I would want to be a diplomat because I've always had a very independent mind. Uh, and I wasn't sure I would be happy receiving instructions from yes. a minister. And so I'm with, I like I'm with you on that. I, I've always, there was this point in my career early where I thought, you know, maybe I should join the Foreign Service. But, you know, President Bush was in office and I was like, how could I execute against his orders? I'm curious that you decided to opt into, I suppose, a, a, a law career as a way around that. Yes, uh, we, you know, with the status of a judge, with the independence. But the reality is that at the same time, what I was doing, I found pretty boring. And I had the training in international affairs, and so whenever I could escape. But in position of independence, when I, was the, uh, when I became the director of policy planning in the Quai d'Orsay in 1989, which mm-hmm. is really a good time to, uh, to, to take that position. I would uh, imagine, yeah. Um, this is a position where you are there to give independent advice on the foreign policy where you're not there to, you're not there as an implementer. And sure. so sort of like the in-house think tank, right? The policy planning state is like the in-house think tank of the foreign ministry. Exactly. Yeah. And you were ahead of that in 1989, a, a transformative year in international uh, politics. What were your first indications uh, that, that sort of the world is about to change when you were the head of the, the policy planning staff? Well, I go to Poland in the spring of uh, 1989. That's when I have the uh, lunch with Valesa that I mentioned in my book. There you, you get a sense that I had I'd worked uh, for a short time in the policy planning staff in 1980, uh, at the time of the um, crackdown on solidarity and uh, you know, the, the last gasp of the, of the hard Soviet Union, when there was talk of a possible invasion of Poland. And when you come back to Poland in 1989, you really have a sense that this is different, that, some, that there is an energy uh, there uh, on one side and a lack of confidence on the other that uh, that's going to, to change things. Did I then anticipate the magnitude of what was going to happen? Uh, no. Where, where I did a good job was later on at the, in the year when the Berlin Wall uh, fell. Then I, I, I went to Berlin a month after the um, fall of the Berlin Wall. I was there in late, in late November. And then I became immediately convinced, talking to people there, that the notion that East Germany uh, could survive the opening of the wall was uh, completely wrong because it's like a, a balloon that uh, that as a whole you can't keep it inflated, uh, and that's what had happened to East Germany. And so, I uh, actually, in my role as head of policy planning, I uh, I tried hard to convince the, the the French authorities that the unity of Germany was going to happen much faster uh, than anticipated, including by Helmut Kohl himself. And that was going to be a good thing. That I saw very clearly uh, in uh, December 1989. And, and in your book, you describe how the ideas that, that were animating you the most at this time were very much Kissinger-esque ideas. And that's not something you're known for now. So I'm curious to know, why, is, like, why did what we consider maybe neoconservatism or hard realism appeal to you at, in that era so, so much. And it's not something that the French are necessarily known for uh, adopting either, which, which sort of makes you, I guess, somewhat an iconoclast at the time. 
Yes, well, you know, when I had been in the policy planning staff, not as the head of policy planning, but seconded as a junior member of the policy planning staff in, 19, uh, in 1979, 1980, um, I met at the time Albert Wolstetter, uh, Paul Wolfowitz, uh, a number of people were, in a way, the I mean, key figures in the in the neocon uh, movement. And my uh, my conceptual side actually was very interested in the theories of nuclear deterrence, Thomas Schelling, uh, nuclear um, Henry Kissinger, all those people. And I was convinced, and actually I don't uh, reject the, the the view that the hard nosed policies vis-à-vis -vis the Soviet Union. Uh, were an important contributing factor in the demise of, of the Soviet uh, of the Soviet Union. Where I broke with my uh, neoconservative colleagues is that when the uh, Berlin uh, Wall collapsed, when the when the um, Cold War ended, I did not share the the triumphalism. I, I thought it was much more the collapse of a system than the victory of, of an idea, that it was much more the exhaustion of the Soviet Union uh, than the triumph of, uh, the so of, 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 the, of the so-called West. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't buy that kind of uh, self-righteousness, let's say, uh, of the West. And I saw that by having lost an enemy, the question of who we are, what, around which identities our society is going to be structured, was going to be a, a very important issue, and that's why, uh, in a way, as a as a testament to my years as head of policy planning, uh, I wrote a book that I published in 1993, which had a much more provocative title in French than it in its English uh, translation, because in French, it was uh, the title was La fin de la démocratie, the end of democracy. Uh, in English, it became the end, the end of the nation state. Huh. Uh, the publisher, uh, the publisher wouldn't let you do the end of democracy. No, <laughs> <laughs> I thought I would think it would sell more that way, being being as provocative as it was. But so, so what was happening? You know, in 1993, the the, the, the Balkans were you know starting to dissolve, not not totally dissolved yep. at that point. Uh, you're still sort of basking in this afterglow of this truly momentous moment where the entire world rallied against Saddam Hussein in a UN-sanctioned action that seemed to be like the triumph of um, against yeah. aggression and, and this sort of this new world order coming to be. What, what made you buck that trend? Well, because I saw all the fragilities. I thought that, I mean, in a way, my book was one of the very first on globalization. I felt that Managing multiple identities uh, was going to be a very uh, tough uh, challenge for most people. For the kind of cosmopolitan people like myself, uh, who have a strong education, uh, in a way you enjoy having multiple identities. But for the vast majority of the people, it's a great source of anxiety. And when you see today, I mean, how the Middle East is uh, turning out when you see the multiple crises in, in Africa. Uh, in, my, in my book uh, of 1993, there was a chapter which was called The Lebanization of the World. Uh, by that meaning uh, uh, that the way communities in, in Lebanon had uh, gone into a, a very nasty war for many years, 
was something that would be replicated, that it was not a unique phenomenon. It was, it was an illustration of the fact that if, if nation-states based on static population uh, with very clearly defined borders were going to, if they were going to be in crisis, then the whole democratic idea, which is based on the idea that you don't have to define the community you belong to, it is self-evident, the whole democratic idea would be would be at risk and would be problematic. And that's what we see uh, today. So how long were you in the, the policy planning staff throughout the 90s? Four I mean, you, you see, so if in, in four years, so you, you were allowed to have this gloomy view on, on, on the world uh, and, and where things were headed while still working for the French government. Yes, yes. Well, you know, they, they accepted, I mean, in the French government, they have always uh, recognized them an independent spirit, and I like that. And that's the... That's the good side of France, is that uh, you do have some independent spirit. It's like Gavroche, uh, the hero of Victor Hugo. <laughs> what changed that, you, that made you leave the, the Foreign Service? Oh, I was briefly ambassador to the Western European Union, and uh, uh, there I, I liked the instructions I had, which was to really bring the Western European Union into the European Union so that there would be a defense dimension to the European Union. I've always believed that uh, Europe should be much more integrated, much more, fe- much more of a federal system than it, than it is. So I was happy to contribute to that. Uh, but then uh, there were cha- political changes. I'm considered, and I, I am a center-left uh, person. So uh, come, uh, come uh, 90, the end of 95, I, am, I go back to the court of uh, audit uh, for a few years. What is that, like a financial court of some sort? It's a, it's a court that uh, can uh, impose fines on all the people who manage public finance in France and that audits uh, all the public entities of France. Oh, so that's a fairly powerful position, I would imagine. You know, it is. It is a, it is a, it is a strong institution of France. It was created by Napoleon, uh, and it has evolved over time, but it's... You know, it's the it's the French watchdog from for public finance. Uh, so, I mean, I have to imagine just sort of knowing you, not personally, but knowing your your public uh, persona and, and having you know followed your career, that working in a court like that was probably not getting your sort of intellectual juices going. How did you sure. sort of manage <laughs> d- during during that time? Your sort of exile well, in the Chirac years, I suppose. I was asked to be the chairman of the Institute for Higher Defense Studies, and I had kept my network of, uh, uh, you know, in think tanks, and so I was often, I wrote a number of articles, I was, I remain engaged in international affairs, going to conferences, writing articles, but not being uh, as, as engaged as we would have liked to. So where were you when you heard the news that you were being suggested for the UN peacekeeping job? I was at the court of audit, but there were friends in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that thought uh, it would be a good idea for me to uh, to play a more prominent role in international affairs again. Uh, Kofi Annan wanted France to produce uh, several candidates, and so the French government put me on that list of uh, of candidates. How did you find out that you were put on this list? Oh, I was, uh, I was, uh, I mean, I was asked whether I would be willing to be on the list. <laughs> and, uh, and then, but I didn't think I would, had much of a chance because I was not the sort of, uh, uh, the insider, the insider candidate. Kofi Annan wanted several candidates, but then he, 
he asked me to stay for two years, and then after a year, he said, would you stay till the end of my term? Mm -hmm. And I said, of course, and that changed my life. So I, I was wondering, did you have like a job interview with Kofi Annan? Oh, yes, there was how, a how series of interviews. I interviewed with Kofi Annan, I interviewed with his chief of staff, I interviewed with the, uh, uh, the head of the Department of Political Affairs with a... Um, there was so, five or six interviews of senior by what, senior officials of the UN, including a forty-five minutes conversation with Kofi Annan. So, so can you take me in in that room with Kofi Annan? I, I presumably it's it's on the top floor of of the UN building. Yes, on the thirtieth floor. What's it like? What was your experience during that time? Like, what are your what are your memories, your recollections, your how nervous were you? <laughs> I was a bit nervous, to be honest. I had the. Like a good student, I had uh, read any, everything I could put my hand on. On them, and I, I knew peacekeeping uh, as a, I mean, as a s specialist of foreign affairs. But uh, I was not a specialist of peacekeeping, uh, and so I had read anything I could find on peacekeeping. So, but you know, the, the, the guy interviewing you for for you know people who don't know, he Kofi Annan was the head of UN peacekeeping at one point. Indeed, indeed, he knew more than I did. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, but. I think what he wanted is uh, uh, he, he wanted someone who would have an understanding uh, of uh, the strategic issues, who would know how to manage an operation. And the fact that I am I mean, my uh, my auditor's side, my management side, I think uh, was something he liked uh, too, and someone who would uh, who would be. I think the fact that I, I appeared as someone independent. He liked that too, because uh, one of the, I mean, I think strong characteristics of Kofi Annan is he wanted to build a team that would be loyal to him and not just extensions of the states, of the member state they were coming from. So and so I think he, in these 45 minutes, you know, he's a, he was a very nice interviewer. He put, he put uh, you at ease in his office. Um, Asking questions on my various experience, how I'd reacted uh, to the events in my life, and uh, getting a sense of my personality rather than uh, uh, how much I knew about peacekeeping. I think um, he was interested in the, you know, in the, uh, yes, in the in the life experience of the person he was recruiting. I mean, so this is the year two thousand, right? Yes. So, so it's you know the the big I guess peacekeeping issues at the time are probably centered in like East Timor and in uh, West Africa. W were you talking about the global implications of those situations? Oh, I, I mean, how, how granular? I, yeah. I uh, was interviewing, I interviewed in the month in May 2000. And uh, that was uh, when the uh, crisis in Sierra Leone was at its uh, worst, with uh, soldiers taken prisoners, I mean, the, the mission on the verge of collapse. Uh, and so that was a time when... Uh, there was a the Brahmi report was being prepared, so there was a sense that peacekeeping certainly had to reinvent itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so I think this is an important point, maybe to stress for people who are not as familiar with the UN as you and I that Lakhdar Brahimi, the Algerian diplomat, uh, was commissioned to write this big report on UN peacekeeping that came out in 2000 that took a, a hard look at the failures of UN peacekeeping in the 1990s, specifically in, in the Balkans and in Rwanda, and made a series of recommendations on how to improve the operation, the, the institution of UN peacekeeping. And, and you are the guy that implemented that report. Exactly. The report came out in the summer of 2000, 
and I became the head of peacekeeping, the undersecretary in charge of peacekeeping on October 1st, uh, 2000. So really, the the report was, it was my marching order. I mean, then uh, my uh, my job was to uh, transform the management of peacekeeping so that it could uh, withstand I mean, the potential considerable growth and. Uh, when I arrived in uh, at the UN, the number of peacekeepers after the uh, boom of the first half of the 90s, uh, there had been a, a quick uh, downsizing after the disasters that you just referred to, uh, Yugoslavia, uh, Somalia, uh, Rwanda, and so there were, I think, I, I don't have the exact figure, I think a little more than 20,000 troops, and when I left, there would be 100,000, and so the challenge was how do you build structures that will not collapse under the weight of such uh, enormous growth? The most immediate challenge was how do I uh, uh, start? Uh, I mean, I had to prepare a report on the implementation of the Brahimi report. There was support in the membership of the United Nations for a strengthening of the Department of Peacekeeping operations. So I had to think through the new structures. I had to recruit people. And these were, in a way, the most important decisions. And I was... I was mentioning that I have met some of the very best people in my professional life in the UN. I think I was lucky to be in a period of expansion where I could recruit them. And so I built around me, uh, I think, an extraordinary team, which uh, which really made my job much less difficult uh, than it would have been. And then there were, uh, we, we had in rapid succession a number of missions that were expanding. Uh, we had a situation in uh, Congo that deteriorated in 2003. So the the first uh, three three years were years of enormous work between expanding, building the ship uh, mm. so that it would be more seaworthy and addressing uh, crises uh, uh, almost on a weekly basis. Uh, there was not much time for. Well, and then, and then, of course, you know, in in, in the middle of that came nine eleven, right? Uh, what, where were yes. you? Were you at the United Nations at, at the time? What was your What was your experience that day? Well, nine eleven then started as a beautiful day. I mean, the the this is a spectacular September day in New York, and I would arrive at the office around eight thirty. And when I was told there had been uh, something on the World Trade Center, I immediately thought it was a terrorist uh, thing, not an accident. The weather was just too good for that. Then I start my uh, my daily meeting at nine, and I say, "Well, there must have been a terrorist attack on uh, the World Trade Center. We had some terrorist attacks in France some years ago. I think the best <laughs> the best uh, way to address them is to ignore them. I didn't have any idea how m- m- massive the attack uh, was. So, what are the issues of the day? And then I get a message from my assistant telling me the the chief of staff." Uh, of Kofi uh, wants to talk to you. So I get out of the office. He said, well, there's been a second plane and uh, the UN uh, tower may be under attack, so you evacuate. <laughs> I go back to the meeting and tell, well, change of plans, uh, we're evacuating. And uh, then we watch the uh, we watched the two on television with the senior staff of the UN. We're in a small room and we saw uh, we saw the two towers crashing down, the attack uh, on the Pentagon, the plane in Pennsylvania. And there was a sense of uh, sort of a world ending uh, then. Uh, and I remember very well in the weeks following, there was a, uh, when I was in a tunnel, uh, 
I was nervous when I was at the top of the building. There was a sort of little anxiety. But New York is such a resilient city that I could say by Thanksgiving, there was, um, and the city had uh, shaken the, the horrible doom and gloom of, uh, of this terrible day. Was uh, there a, a conversation or a moment where you realized that your role as the head of, of UN peacekeeping, or maybe even the UN's role, was going to suddenly be dramatically different than what you had expected? Yes. Yes, there were conversations with uh, Kofi Annan, with, his, with I mean, uh, all the close team, and there was a sense that what was changing also was the relationship between the United States and the, the rest of the world. When, they, when the attack occurred, there was a great sense of, of world solidarity with the United States. And then the, the dominance of the war on terror, the us against uh, them, uh, I think, destroyed uh, destroyed that that positive moment, and and the UN can work effectively only if uh, the United States is fully engaged uh, with the UN. And the first mandate of uh, President Bush was a very difficult one for for the UN. In his second term, there was a better, uh, in the end, there was a better relationship. Mm -hmm. uh, But the first term was very difficult for the UN, there's no question about it. Kofi Annan was very much in the targets, uh, uh, crosshairs of the Bush administration for his opposition to the war in, in Iraq, but... How did that affect the day-to-day operations of something like UN peacekeeping, or, or did it at all? Initially, it didn't too much. Uh, the the disputes among the P5, especially uh, after the Iraq War, uh, that made things uh, more complicated. Although it was, it's interesting to see how, for instance, on on the Democratic Republic of the Congo, at a time when the when there was really a deep divide between France and the and the U.S., uh, that did not paralyze the the Security Council. Uh, what what did not really occur during my time, but which I see more and more clearly, is that the the question of terrorism is transforming uh, peacekeeping, and it's it's shrinking the political space because now there is a tendency to to label as a terrorist anybody who hasn't signed a peace agreement. We see it in Mali, uh, we see it in many places, and also because of the. Uh, the asymmetrical warfare that is being uh, conducted by terrorist groups, uh, the whole posture of the UN is changing. The, the UN traditionally, the, the peacekeepers, they didn't live in fortified compounds. They mingle with the population, uh, and it's part of their job. And there, the defining event was not 9-11. It was the attack on the UN compound uh, in Baghdad, uh, that that was a transformative uh, that was a transformative event uh, when because there was a sense in the UN that we would never be a real target, although we had been uh, at the time of 9/11. But it was I mean, thank God uh, there was no attack on the UN uh, tower. I mean, uh, horrible enough what happened, uh, but. Baghdad, uh, the UN is attacked. Some of the best and the, and the brightest in the UN are killed in the attack. 
and uh, that really uh, changed the whole mindset uh, of the UN. Did that did that change happen Im- immediately for you, or was it more gradual? You know, recognition that that the the posture of peacekeeping, the posture of the UN, can't be the same any longer. Uh, it was it was gradual because also I mean. In the case of the Baghdad attack, there was a sense among many of us that the UN presence in Baghdad uh, had not been really warranted. That the UN, uh, Jan Bremer, uh, no, not Jan Bremer, I mean, uh, Sergio. Uh, but that Sergio de Mello uh, did not really, um, was not used as he should be by. Uh, by the U.S. Uh, in 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 Iraq, that the the U.N. as an impartial broker who could help bring the Iraqis together was dismissed, uh, and so that these people who had been killed uh, in Baghdad, in a way, they they tragically it was tragic enough that they had died, but it was it was uh, even worse that they had died for very little that. When peacekeepers die um, uh, on the line of duty, making a difference, it's it's very sad that you feel they are they are making that difference. And many of us were wondering whether our friends and colleagues who died in Baghdad uh, they were making a difference when they died. Um. Looking forward to to UN peacekeeping in this era where um, the UN is a target uh, since that uh, attack in in Iraq. The UN is now very much a target of of terrorists, and and you see you know even suicide bombing uh, against uh, UN personnel, and you know said places like Mali and and elsewhere. Attack on the UN compound in in Nigeria, in in Algeria, a UNDP office attacked. How I mean, how can the UN operate um, in places where? There is, you know, like an Islamist insurgency, and and you know some of the most important and some of those volatile conflicts in the world are ones in which there is an active Islamist insurgency that sees the UN as a legitimate uh, target. Well, I think of there there are some fundamental changes that have occurred and that need to, I mean, to continue there. And the UN has to protect itself, has to take much more security measures than it used to. That being said, I think the the positioning of the United Nations uh, on the question of terrorism uh, should be a little different, because I, I do think that the the definition of ter- terrorism is a tactic. Uh, it's not a movement. And so uh, many organizations at some point in history have used the terrorist means and I and I think the UN has to try to reopen a political space. Of course, there are organizations with which I mean uh, it would be futile to put it mildly to try to talk when the Islamic State has no, has no interest in talking to you, has any interest, every interest in killing you. Uh, but I think the the posture that has been taken by the by the United States, by the Europe, by the Europeans following the U.S. on that, that talking is a kind of reward uh, and that therefore the number of groups you shouldn't talk to, I don't think that is wise. And I think it's important for the U.N. uh, to 
to protect its capacity to talk to everybody who is willing to talk. And by that, it means that you don't confer any legitimacy to uh, whoever you talk to. If you make it uh, a principle that uh, talking is not uh, recognition, is not giving legitimacy, you're just uh, doing your job as uh, as a broker between various uh, political force, which doesn't mean that you condone in any way the atrocities committed by various groups, but uh, you, the notion that the UN is just a party in a, in a very poorly defined war on terror, I don't think that is good for the United Nations, and I don't think it is good for, for peacemaking. Uh, well, Mr. Gehenno, we're just about out of time. Uh, thank you for speaking with me. Is there anything else you'd like to plug? I, I certainly encourage uh, listeners to read your book. Um, I'm reading it right now. It's it's a fascinating account of a really transformative period in the UN's history uh, told by someone who was on the front line. So so thank you for writing it. Um, what's what's next for, for the International Crisis Group? Any any uh, projects coming up that you'd want to to discuss or plug? Well, we, we are working, uh, the strength of crisis group has been to look at specific conflicts in countries. Now we need to connect the dots more because what we see, for instance, in terms of local conflicts being hijacked by jihadists is something that you see in a variety of countries. So we need to sometimes look at transnational issues at crisis group. And I'm going to to strengthen the, the policy side of crisis group. I see that there's a great demand for uh, policy advice on issues ranging from how you fight the Islamic uh, State to how you handle the differences in the uh, South China Sea. Uh, so you're going to see us very visible and engaged on all those issues. Well, as long as you don't change too much, because I absolutely love reading your policy briefs as they are. It's, 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 it's some of my favorite reading material out there. We will keep it. Don't worry. Okay. But we just expand. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much for your time, for this book, and for sharing your, your stories with me and everyone else. Thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Mr. Gehenno and the good folk at the International Crisis Group. If you love this podcast and if you made it to the end, I suspect that you do, please share it. You can write a review or just star it on iTunes. That actually helps other people who are similarly foreign policy minded discover the show. As always, you can send me an email via globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg if you have any questions, comments, provocations, or suggestions. And here's my friend Giancarlo Volcano on the track Something Different which you hear every time you listen to Global Dispatch's podcast. So thank you, Giancarlo. Go buy his album. It's pretty great. See you later. Bye.